You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. It's episode 83 of Grow Yourself Up, and this week I'm joined by Thalia Pellegrini. So Thalia is a registered nutritional therapist. After graduating from Cambridge University, she spent a decade as a presenter for the BBC before deciding to embrace a new career. She retrained, qualifying as a nutritional therapist in 2009, following a three-year course at the Institute of Optimum Nutrition in London. Her specialist interest is women's health. She runs her signature perimenopause group program, the Energized Mum Method, online, as well as working one-to-one with women globally to address hormonal health issues ranging from PCOS, PMS to perimenopause, as well as low energy and fatigue. Her Instagram handle is the Knackered Mums Nutritionist, and she's passionate about empowering women to hold their own well-being sacred. And um, in this episode, Thalia and I talk about her own journey to motherhood, how she's grown herself up in motherhood and how she continues to do that, and how um, supporting herself with with um, good food has been a really important part of her journey. And we also talk a bit about um, perimenopause um, towards the end. And it's so helpful to have these conversations because often a lot of us, um, we may know quite a lot of stuff kind of in not that much detail or a bit on the fringe, but some of the things that Thalia, Thalia said um, really um, reminded me about, for example, the importance of breakfast and often when we're um, healing from trauma, what many people say, they have this thing where they say, oh, I don't eat breakfast or um, I'm, I can't eat breakfast. But often what that's actually about is that our nervous system is so frazzled that we are, we're not actually connecting to our hunger signals because we've got so much anxiety. And so things, um, you know, we're not kind of authentically connecting to our appetite and um I personally, that I always used to have that where I could basically not have breakfast or have breakfast really late. And I find it really confusing because there's a lot of different advice around fasting, but I'm not going to go into that now. But um, I've noticed, and Thalia talks about this, about having um, protein at breakfast. I saw a post about hers on the hers that, about that the other day. Um, and um, it's really helpful kind of, I think, um, considering our food and how we support ourselves with nutrition as we heal from trauma, because um, that's a huge part of um, of like balancing our blood sugar and, and not stressing ourselves out more. So um, I really hope you find this episode interesting and useful. And let's dive in. Hi, Thalia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's really a delight to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Kath. Pleasure. I wanted you to start off, we've had a, a lovely chat now beforehand, and I wanted you to tell us a bit about your path to motherhood and how you came to be a mum and about your sons. I always knew I would be a mum. Although when I say that now, it seems arrogant to say it, but I was always a very maternal child. I had two younger brothers. I remember very clearly when I got married, being in the church and having this vision of children and a house. It was really powerful. And then, you know, we got married, um, 
we had no reason to think we wouldn't be able to fall pregnant. And then we didn't. And after about a year, 18 months, I was already into my 30s then. We didn't want to waste too much time. We did some um, exploration and found out there was a problem with my husband. And, you know, we were told we might not be able to conceive at all and that even IVF might not be successful. And it was devastating. It was devastating. <sighs> Such devastating news. Wow. I just remember I cried and I couldn't, I wasn't, it was almost, I wasn't even crying. My eyes were leaking all the time, almost as if the sadness was pouring out of me all the time. And I, I'm the eldest child and I, it took me six months to tell my parents because I couldn't speak about it without crying. And then, um, we went to see a fertility specialist and I was thinking about this yesterday in anticipation of our chat. And I remember we sat in front of her and she said to us, when was the last time you had fun? And I remember we just both sat there, just totally sort of thought about the question. And I, said, oh, we, I don't know. I don't remember the last time we laughed. And she said, this is your journey, but you have to find your joy again. And we left that clinic and we knew that we would, we would need to have IVF and try that. And um, we tried to get fun back in our lives. And then six months later, we started our IVF journey. And um, we were extremely lucky. And uh, we had one round and we fell pregnant. Wow. That's almost unheard of. I know. Extremely lucky. And I think I really, I'm a real control freak, but I gave myself to the process. I didn't question anything. I just relaxed into it. I mean, obviously from a nutritional perspective, I did everything I could and I had acupuncture and I took time off work and I really committed to relaxing into the process. And I remember feeling more relaxed because I thought this is the, the best chance I've had of ever of getting pregnant and someone else is in control. And that felt really reassuring. And so we were extremely lucky. And um, yeah, we had our, our lovely boy um, in 2010. But because of that process, I think I was so focused on having a baby, I didn't think about the bit that came after. I didn't think about bringing home a baby because everything had been about getting pregnant and staying pregnant, you know. And we had a very tough time. We had a tough time. So yeah, it was that was my journey. And did you, because I think that, I mean, that's incredibly, um, IVF journeys I think are so... There's so much grief, so much grief because of not being able to fall pregnant and, and all of the kind of messages that come around that and other people getting pregnant around you. And it really adds a complicating factor. How did that kind of impact your view of like allowing yourself to ask for help and around acknowledging any difficulty? Because what I notice is that often when we're older, when we've had trauma and when we've had IVF and other, other traumas on the way, that it feels often impossible to acknowledge how challenging actually having the baby is and, and actually the mothering journey. And I wonder if that had been your experience and how you supported yourself with that and like if you needed help. And It's such a good question because I think that experience for me in that first year really informed the business I have now as an academic nutritionist because my son didn't sleep, so he had severe eczema. And he, uh, he literally, I think I say this when I tell people this, I think I'm exaggerating. They think he must be exaggerating. He didn't sleep more than 45 minutes. Um, really the first 14 months of his life, I think he, he slept one four hour stretch once. And oh my word, but you must have been hanging by a thread. I was, but I, but that's the point really is that I didn't complain. I didn't, I thought it was hubris. That if I said anything, if I asked for help, this baby would be taken away from me. So I literally, I was terrified something would happen to him. I wouldn't let him out of my sight. So I, I didn't ask for help. I didn't tell anybody. It was the loneliest year of my life. My husband went back to work. We'd been in hospital for 10 days. So he literally went back to work three days after I got home. And, um, oh my word. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't ask for help. And then about when he was about, Almost a year, I spoke to a sleep trainer, I guess you'd call her. And she said, Daddy, I think you have postnatal depression. I said, well, I, I'm fine. I'm fine. I have my baby. I'm fine. And um, looking back, I think I was in real trouble. I mean, I, was, I know I was in real trouble. I lost a lot of weight. I wasn't well. I was barely eating mentally. I mean, I was 
chronically sleep deprived. It's extraordinary how what we survive as women. Yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm really like, I guess what stopped you asking for help when you say you were worried your baby would be taken from you? That sounds like such a huge thing to carry. I felt like it was, but I, I thought that, you know, you wanted a baby, you have a baby and it's hard. Just get on with it. You don't ask for help. Why would you just, just get on with it? Um, so I, yeah, I told no one. Wow. So you had some really punitive voices in your head actually saying that to you. You like, you've got what you want now. So you can't, can't ask for help. And the, the worst thing is he was a really joyful baby. I mean, he was lovely. He had a lovely nature. He, he brought so much joy, but he just didn't sleep and he didn't sleep in the day either. <laughs> And he still isn't, you know, he's still, well, he's, you know, a teenager and he still gets up at 6.30, 7 o'clock. He's just not a kid that needs a lot of sleep, never has, you know. So there was no, um, there was no break. And then I fell pregnant naturally when he was 14 months old. No, no respite. Then I was chronically sleep deprived. Oh my word, how did you have any time for sex? <laughs> I know, it's impressive, isn't it? <laughs> um and then so then I was pregnant you know and there was uh so two miracles they're both miracles and then along came my second son and and my first son was sleeping better but oh and can I just stop you there tell me more about how did you when um when the sleep lady said to you I think you've got postnatal depression did you get any help then did you did you allow yourself that you might need some support no I didn't no I didn't I just carried on. I just pushed on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and that's, uh, it sounds like you've been a really good pusher on her. And I think that many listeners will resonate with that actually, that we're trained for that um, in our childhood somehow to just kind of cope and cope and cope. What stopped you doing that? Uh, nothing. My second son came along. My first son started sleeping better. But then my second son didn't sleep because he had reflux, which went undiagnosed for six months. And um, so I, I really didn't sleep for the best part of four or five years. Oh, I'm so sorry. But that was kind of my crisis point, really, was when I realized, I remember sitting um, in the, the nursery with the boys and uh, the eldest would have been just two and the baby was newborn and they were both crying and I was crying. And I remember this moment of really acute loss for the life I'd had. You know, I'd gone from a television presenter. I was traveling the world. I felt great to being a shell. I felt like a piece of tissue paper that had been crumpled up. There was nothing to me. I felt so like I stopped existing. And that was kind of a crisis point. And I thought, you you have to be here for these boys. You can't you can't keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, but I think in my mind, I thought that it was the right thing to do, that, you know, as a mother, my job was to pour everything into my sons, particularly as I was so lucky because I had really faced the possibility of not having children. Yeah, yeah. So it was a long way round to saying, you know what, if you want to be the best mother you can for these children, you have to look after yourself. <laughs> and it started there. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, when the, the second was small. And tell me, because I think this thing that we keep on kind of touching on around how when we really wanted them, we it's almost impossible to hold this is so hard. And so then we kind of double down on punishing ourselves about I can't ask for help, I can't tell anyone. And we we silence ourselves with our struggle because it because like what you said, because of gratitude that we're so grateful we had the baby. And and that's kind of one of the things that I want to most blow apart, basically, because even though you really wanted it, and even though I really want my children, we're still deserving of help. And so I'm really grateful that you're sharing your story with us, because I think that this is such a, a like a widespread experience. Absolutely. And I remember uh, when I first became a mum, a health visitor coming to see me, and he must have been about three weeks old, and I was in absolute pieces. And... She said, is he in a routine? And, you know, is he gaining weight? She didn't say, she, I mean, I was just looking at this woman sitting on a sofa, you know, looking horrendous. She never said, how are you? She didn't say, are you okay? And this idea that we have all this focus on mothering skills and not on maternal well-being. And 
that's really drives a lot of what I do um, in my business. She left and I remember crying, crying, crying. And someone saying to me, well, you just need to get him into a routine. And I remember thinking, well, we have a routine. He doesn't sleep and I feed him all the time. That, yeah. Is that not a routine? That's our routine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honestly, I think that some of these baby routines are literally made to punish us because they're just such a load of rubbish, like such a load of rubbish. Honestly, and, and everyone asks you that as if they're trying to be well-meaning, but it's so punishing. And tell me, so then when you, you, you had that um, kind of lo- like breaking point where you were like, I've got to look after myself. How did you turn things around? Because you mentioned you weren't eating and you weren't sleeping. What, how did you kind of gather life force together to really love yourself and nurture and feed yourself? It sounds like. Um, really slowly. And I think I, I returned to my training and, you know, I was qualified nutritional therapist by, by then, but. It had all just gone out of the window in a, in a fog of exhaustion. So I started to prioritize eating and to make those meals nourishing. And it, when I said I didn't ask for help, I wouldn't even ask my husband for help because I felt like I, I needed to be doing everything. So I would, I was asking for help for the first time. And that just started to make small inroads into how I felt and I would feel a little better. Um, and I mean, it was a slow process. Um, but then I did feel better. I mean, it took maybe four or five months, but I felt better and better. And I realized that that it was okay to nourish myself as well as my boys. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's essential to nourish yourself. Tell, tell me about how you, um, that thing about not asking for help from your husband, how did that kind of play out? And how did you start to shift that? I think because I was breastfeeding, he couldn't help with the feet so he couldn't help at night because the baby wanted me and he was at work he was going off to work and I felt that you know I had my baby I was lucky enough to be at home he was having to go out and go to work and he would get back and he would do what he could but it was just a really trying time for any couple you know with a a newborn that's not sleeping it's really demanding yeah incredibly demanding yeah and so I mean it's a blur to me it's a bit of a blur um, I just remembered letting go a little of the control mm. and being a little kinder to myself. I didn't articulate it to myself as that, but that's what I was doing. I was just being a little kinder to myself and letting him do a little more and not feeling that that was a failure, that somehow getting help of any kind was a failure. I'd always done everything myself and suddenly I couldn't. Yeah, That was just a big uh, transition for me in motherhood. It took some time. Yeah, and I think that you're touching there on something that's so poignant because so many of us have learned to be so self-sufficient. And then when we can't do things in motherhood that will be that self-sufficient, it feels like such a catastrophic personal failing. And it's absolutely the opposite of that. But it's so, I think that our sense of self gets almost decimated then because we're like, oh, I'm not so competent or I'm not, like I can't cope. But I think that well, many of us, because I really identify with what you're saying, we had the wrong model to begin with. Like we needed more support our whole lives probably. And um, you're touching on those themes that I guess are very popular at the moment around like that book Fair Play and um, having kind of distributed labor in the house based not based on gender roles. Do you dialogue about that or did you just kind of step back and, as you say, let go of control? I think it was that. I think it was just stepping back. Yeah, I think we were we were both in our sort of traditional roles up until that point, and and that you know that was a conversation we'd had. You know, I felt that I wanted my job to be uh, to be home and raising the children, and I was comfortable with that. I was very happy with that. I I, I loved um, being home. I was lucky. I didn't find it that. I mean, it was of course it's monotonous, monotonous, and it can be boring. But I I was happy to do that. But then it did feel it was that it was that feeling of. He has to go to work and I don't have to go to work. You know, the idea that we don't equate mothering with work. <laughs> and it's such, such hard, hard work. So it just took time. You know, we evolved as a couple as our children grew. And, you know, we're in a very, you know, our children are 13 and 11 now. So it's a very different um, setup. And we we certainly dialogue about how we're going to, re- we're raising the boys. And, you know, it's very much a powerful partnership. But in those early days, you're finding your feet as a couple again, aren't you? And you have no, there's no way of anticipating. It's like someone's, you know, put a, you know, literally decimated, I think, everything you thought you knew about yourself. And it certainly had a really detrimental effect on my well-being. 
so yeah, I, I, I've, I've walked the walk to, to get to this point of supporting women to hold their well-being sacred because I didn't and uh, it took me a long time to realise how powerful it is for us when we do do that and how easy, much easier it makes mothering when we do that. Yes, and I want to hear more about that and the journey with food. But tell me about, you know, I think it's really relevant what you said about there's that thing about I'm happy, I'm happy to have chosen to stay at home and, and also acknowledging luckiness that we, that we can do that. And I think this is internalized patriarchy where we devalue the work of mothering because saying I'm not going to work, that's absolute rubbish. It's just that we're staying in home and it's unpaid and largely unseen. And really it's, um, it's such stressful, dynamic problem solving, mentally intense, emotionally intense work, like the most intense that I've ever had in any job, you know? And so I think so much of it is actually us valuing our work because it, it's, it's like so easy to denigrate it. And it's, it's like the work of raising children and building their brains and teaching them to value themselves is, I think, some of the most important work in the world, maybe the most important in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And tell us about how, so I know you're a nutritional therapist and you help mums nourish themselves. How have you helped people really focus on like, their well-being is sacred. I like how you put that. It's always fascinating that um, I run sort of free events uh, through the year and uh, uh, groups of women will sort of join me online. And one of the things that comes up again and again and again over the years is permission, permission to nourish yourself. And that permission always comes from the woman because she feels guilt around looking after herself and she feels guilt around making time for herself in any way. And so part of what I do is to support her to acknowledge and recognize the importance of the impact when she is well and healthy and energized. You know, everything funnels through us as mothers. Um, so if we are energized, there's a ripple effect. And if a mother is happy and vibrant and loved, everyone feels it. If a mother is exhausted and overwhelmed, everyone feels it. And so it's, it's almost perverse, isn't it? That we feel guilty about putting ourselves first or anywhere in the top, in the top of our to-do list. And yet when we are tired and unhappy and hormonal and all of the, those things, we are more likely to shout at the kids, lose our patience. We're more likely to find it more challenging to do what we, we need to do every day. So it's f for a lot of women, the starting point with me is, encouraging them to recognize that and recognize that they should not feel guilty they are too important to not put their well well-being at part, um, at top of their you know their their to-do list once the boys were a little older and i was feeling much more um happy about how i looked after myself i kind of went from strength to strength in my health and then in in 2017 early 2017 I lost a very close friend of mine um and she died very suddenly oh, i'm so and, sorry uh, I'm so sorry. I talk about her a lot when I, I do my work because I really feel that the work I do now honours her memory. I hope it honours her memory. So she had three small children. Uh, the eldest was seven and the, the youngest was three. And she was fine and she was exhausted. She was absolutely exhausted. But, you know, we were all exhausted. Our children were tiny. And she was one of those mum friends. You know, someone who you WhatsApp at four o'clock going and saying, I'm losing my fucking mind meeting in the playground. I can't get through the next three hours, you know. Have to get out of the house. So she was that mum. Oh, what a wonderful um, And um, wow. she she got the flu. I mean, she cooked me dinner on the Saturday night. We had this lovely dinner. And I said goodbye. And she said she did for a while on the Sunday. Uh, she was in bed on the Monday with flu. And then the next message I got was that um, she had been taken to hospital and she died of sepsis on uh, the Tuesday afternoon. So she climbed into the ambulance on Tuesday morning and she passed away about four o'clock. What a tragedy. A really rare um, <gasps> and an absolute tragedy and really rare. And all the women, the, the team that tried to bring her back were all women. And um, I heard the story about her death years later from a nurse who'd been there at the time. And she was talking about, oh, it's a terrible day. We lost this mum. And, and it was it was her. Um, so I think it is really rare, but her death was seismic. And, um, because even at that point, 
I think we still felt we were invincible as mothers. Yeah. Because we have to be. That's so, what an absolute tragedy for that mom and her family and for you losing your friend. And also that thing, what you say about us, us being invincible and the, you know, the thing about we have to care for ourselves because we need to care for our children is also quite fucked up because actually we're valuable just in our own right, you know, but we, that the fact that we have to give ourselves permission to care for ourselves, it's so devastating. I mean, it's such a legacy of this, of, of our society and how we were raised as children and so many things. So I'm so pleased we're touching on this, but it's, it's such a, another tragedy actually that like, that we need almost like a permission slip to care for ourselves. Yeah, she didn't look, I mean, she was, you know, she had three young children. She had no uh, family support. Um, and I, I mean, I think oh, I should have done more. I could have, could I have helped more? Was she just, was she just so weak? Um, but that really sort of stepped up again, my passion for maternal well-being because, you know, we're just, you know, I see her boys all the time and I can't, you know, it breaks my heart that she didn't get to raise them. So I think so sad. the idea that it's a luxury to look after ourselves is insane. It's, it is. Yeah. And it's dangerous, actually. We have to look after ourselves because we are not invincible. And of course, what happened to Joe is a tragedy, but I have so many women sitting, you know, in front of me and they are on their knees. They are burnt out. They have not looked after themselves in years. I will say, when's the last time you, you felt energized? They can't remember. Um, and they think that's normal. They think that's okay. And so because. We're told, well, you're, you know, you're a mum, of course you're knackered. And it's almost a joke, right? It's almost something, you know, the send wine hashtag or pasta chocolate, you know, women getting through the day on caffeine and, and sugar. Yeah. And I've shared about that here. I mean, it's, it's kind of, yeah, sometimes in early motherhood, I was like the next cup of tea or the next chocolate bath. But you know what? I think that behavior that becomes habitual. I think there's a necessity in early motherhood. We have to get through the days. We have the, these, in your case, two times humans, you know, to keep alive. And so there's a degree to which that's, I think that's, that goes with the territory of just trying to get through the days. But that, and I do call it self-neglect, becomes habitual so that you can have, your children can start school and you're still not looking after yourself. And, you know, I see women with children who are, you know, three, four, five, and they'll have what we, I think has been now commonly termed postnatal depletion. Dr. Oscar Serralac talked about that in his book. And they'll say, but my baby, my, you know, my kid's at nursery or they're at, they've just started school. And it's like, but you've been depleted for four years. Have you done anything? Have you changed your behavior? Have you fed yourself properly? Have you nourished yourself? Have you looked after your nervous system in any way in the last four years? And they look at me like they have no idea what I mean. And of course they don't because we are taught that that is just, that's the price you pay for motherhood. <laughs> Exhaustion is the price you pay for motherhood. Um, and so often I'll have women sitting in front of me and they don't believe they can feel better. They genuinely don't. So they often come to me in a state of desperation, which is so sad. I would love women to say, you know, well, I feel great. I feel okay. I feel I don't feel great. I'm going to build on that. I'm going to take some time and spend it, you know, really working on my well-being. And often women come to me because they're sick, because they're chronically ill. In terms of they've had something chronically, it might be endometriosis or PCOS or something that they've had conditioned for years and years and years. Um, and they've just, um, they've reached the point where they can't get through their days how and feeling how they feel. And that's often what it takes for a woman to seek help. Yes. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, um, your yeah, burnout or an autoimmune condition or the, or the, or endometriosis or PCOS that you, that you're referencing are sometimes the only things that call us. And I sometimes feel really desperate about this actually, because there are lots of us who've had this learning sometimes repeatedly. And yet um, that behavior shift is so complicated to do and to embed. How have you kind of embedded that? For myself? Because oh, well, I guess also there's one other thing is that, yeah, how have you embedded that? And how do you kind of, because I think we also have to acknowledge that a lot of the message about you can do everything, we actually have to each stand up in our own lives and say, I can't do everything. Because if I'm, actually going to care for myself properly I actually can't have like a buzzing social life or hit the gym this many times a week I have to actually prioritize like making soups or going to bed early or um batch cooking on the weekend you know like whatever it is that that helps how do you do that I think what you said about um you you often ask about what expectations we let go of in motherhood for me it was you can't do it all and for that was a really huge thing but I had to 
learn in motherhood was releasing the idea of perfection. You know, I was a perfectionist. I'm definitely a people pleaser. And because I'm a nutritional therapist as well, I had this idea that, you know, my kids would eat beautifully and, um, you know, I would eat beautifully. <laughs> Um, and I'm, I do, I do, I do remember, I really enjoyed weaning my kids. I did, um, uh, sort of purees and I took such pleasure. And this is probably reflects something that you and I talked about before we started recording, but I used to love having my ice cube trays of colors. So I would have the butternut here and the, and the purple with all the lovely berries here. So that I took a lot of joy of that. But once they got a little bit older and I, you know, they were eating proper solid foods, that was, oh my goodness, you know. Yeah. Children know their minds or they, they learn very early, don't they, that there is so much emotion attached to food. Oh, my goodness. And I would spend hours preparing something and, you know, you'd put it in front of them and the little head would go to the side. Nope. Um, and so that was a really difficult thing for me to, you know, good enough is good enough with kids, you know. If they eat, and I, I was listening to you chatting to, I think it was Crystal on the podcast a couple of years ago, talking about, you know, just letting the girls eat chips and, and crisps, I think it was, on, chips yeah, and chip on holiday. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yes, because it's not going to do them any harm. And, you know, sometimes we have to take a step back for our own sanity just so that we can relax. And I remember when I started social media um, some years ago, I couldn't find my place. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what my voice should be because every nutritionist and nutritional therapist in the space was, everything seemed so perfect. And it's like, the kids don't have a perfect diet. And, you know, I am, a, I love a Friday night freezer tea, fish fingers and chips. Oh, the joy of that on a Friday night. And I thought, I can't say that on social media. People have an expectation of what, what you know, how I feed my children. And then I just, you know what, that's, that's who I am. I hope you broke out of this. <laughs> that's what yeah. I do. That's how I cope. I, I release the idea that there's anything like a perfect diet. There's no such thing as a perfect diet for anybody. And with our children, we do our best. We, we, we do our best. Um, and so that was, that's a big part of how I've, um, I manage my, I, my expectations and how I cope is that if there's a week where someone is sick, if everyone just eats shit for a week, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, obviously my kids might, I have a, a better understanding of what will nourish them. So. They may eat better, I guess, than, than some kids. But, um, you know, sugar is a big thing and that I've learned to make peace with, I guess, is one, one way of putting it, um, particularly with my kids. What do you mean by that? It's because I think, again, um, people say to me, well, I'm sure your children don't eat sugar. And it's like, of course, my children eat sugar. Um, you know, because I think actually what's much more important is to help them have a healthy relationship with sugar. And I think if you're militant about sugar and you deny it, it's just going to become something that they seek out. And now I have a teenager who is at second, well, two boys at secondary school. And, you know, they can buy their lunch with a touch of their thumb. Um, so that's great when they're tiny and you can control everything that they eat. But at some point, they're going to go out into the world and have access to shops and, you know, everything. So for me, it's, it was what's been really challenging is not rewarding with sugar. So, um, if you do that, you can have pudding. If you, you know, well done, that was fantastic. Let's go and get an ice cream. Um, so all of those things are part, you know, sugar is very much part of, um, uh, how we eat, but it's, they recognize because I've taught them that we want to moderate how much sugar we eat because it affects our mood, it affects our sleep, it affects our behavior. So they are able to self-regulate now. They will say, I'll say, do you want, uh, do you want some pudding? And they'll say, no, I had something at lunch after lunch today at school. I'm fine. It's not something they crave or seek because I've never given it that power. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> and I grew up in a Greek household where food and power and love are so mixed in. Um, and so I crave sugar when I'm sad or low. Um, I didn't want them to have that. And I know you've talked about that relationship with sugar as well. And that's such beautiful insights there. There's so much that I want to go back to. Something you said about, about your, the family, about power and food and love, but also something you said earlier about when you went onto social media and you felt you couldn't find your voice because everyone was presenting such a perfect exterior. And I think that it's so dangerous the way that happens when people who are working in a space present themselves and especially their families, well, like children, that, you know, this child has a perfect rainbow diet. They just eat 
whole grains and protein or whatever, whatever that specific nutritionist deems to be important. And so I'm so happy to hear that you kind of represented what's really going on because I think that in the area of food, it's where one of the biggest things of control happens. And then if if you've been constantly controlled around food as a child, um, your relationship with it is so disordered that um and you've kind of never had the opportunity to develop your own appetite, any of your own preferences, because you've just been told what food is good in inverted commas. And I think that I notice with my kids, if I attach a value judgment to something and say something is good, they almost don't want to do they don't want to eat it. And trying to myself give them some sort of neutral just like messaging around this might make you feel like this, that might make you feel like this. Like I sometimes talk to them about fiber, that if to make sure that they have, you know, that they go to the loo regularly and do a poo, that they need to have fiber and like fruit and vegetables are really useful fiber. And so they sort of know that, but it's so like labeling things as good and bad and it's so wrapped up in so many things. And and so I really, um, I'm so pleased you broke down that myth on your kind of social media. And tell us about your what you just reflect on about the love and the power and the food, and you made this gesture of having it all mixed up. Tell us about that. How has that kind of influenced you? I think I see so many women whose relationship with food is exactly as you describe it. It's disordered, and that relationship starts in childhood. Um, and I, I'm Greek, and like many cultures, food is a huge part of, of our culture. So both of my grandmothers were wonderful cooks, and they, they loved with food. So... My maternal grandmother, uh, you know, she, if you were hungry, it was, it was a disaster. You could never be, you could never be hungry because somehow she had let you down if you were hungry. So she was always baking. She was always cooking. And we made this joke that we would have this beautiful meal. And then half an hour later, she would say, would you like a sandwich? Um, because you might be hungry again. <laughs> you must ever be hungry. So there was so much love around food. Um, but, Definitely, there are a lot of sugar in my childhood, and um, we would be comforted by sugar. Um, and I see this in uh, women from from every culture that I see in my clinic, where their relationship with food has been predetermined. And um, I've heard so many heartbreaking things in my clinic, or you know, of um, women girls being put on diets very young, or being weighed by their mothers once a week with their sisters, or you know, being a, a larger uh, child compared to a slimmer sister and being compared to their sister. Or I had one client who would get in the car after school with her sister and she was overweight and her mother would give a snack to her sister and say, you don't need that. Oh, wow. Um, and then there she was in her 30s with a disastrous relationship with food. So I talk a lot of, to my clients, not to my kids, even to my clients as well about there's no good food or bad food. It's all just food. And actually seeing food as nourishment is a huge, huge leap for a lot of women. They see it as fuel or they see it as source of shame and guilt. They equate it with their body. They don't equate it with, with it being this wonderful source of information for their cells or their hormones or how to, it's the way to feel vibrant or, or sleep better or, you know, feel less hormonal. They just see it as a source of fear or just, they hate it because either they've yo-yo dieted their whole life or they just, food is emotional, but when it tips over into disordered, eating it is emotional in a negative way but i think food is emotional and that's okay yeah it should be a source of joy you know for me a happy relationship with food is knowing you get to eat whatever you want you'll find your balance point of what nourishes you and what makes you feel good and sometimes you better believe for me a nourishment is you know a huge slab of chocolate cake and sitting around the table with my girlfriends it's about recognizing what feeds us you know so often to get a woman to the point where I can send her off with a, a happy relationship with food, which I do, we have to work through this a little bit. And for me to understand her history of, of eating, what has brought her to this point in her life. And it's always her relationship um, with food in her childhood, always. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think that what you said about when you said your granny would make you a beautiful meal and then say, um, would you like a sandwich? And I think that food is such a, actually a way to silence us. So it's a way to love us, but it's also a way to push everything down. And I have had to do work with, just with myself, noticing, uh, tolerating more hunger 
and noticing that I will survive if I, um, cause I notice sometimes I have anxiety. I'm like, Oh, I better have that because what if I get hungry later? And, um, and that's something from my childhood because I think that I definitely at points over eight to push stuff down and noticing like my own bodily signals and being more okay with them and letting what comes up come up because often, um, like for example, when my husband travels and then I feel really lonely, um, sometimes at night I really want to chat to him or it's been a hard bath time or something. Um, it's so easy to then want to eat and like moments of sadness or loneliness or happiness often. I often notice, Oh, I want to have a chocolate. And now I'm really like, actually, what is it that I actually want? And mostly it's human connection. And I don't know if you, you know, Janine Roth. Yeah. I love her work. <laughs> So when she, and I often use that quote from um, her book, Women, Food and God, and she talks about eat what you want when you're hungry and feel what you're feeling when you're not. Um, and that really resonates with a lot of the, the women that I work with. Just as you say, it's that, what are we feeding? Are we feeding sort of the stomach hunger or the mouth hunger? I always think is the emotion. What are we, what are we feeding? So I think that's so true, isn't it? And I think that's, you know, I think we have to be so kind to ourselves a tough bath time or a tough day with the kids or an argument with the kids or, you know, and especially if you're on your own and you just feel worn out from it. And so sometimes that's what we do is we, we find something that feels comforting. So I understand that. Yeah, I think kindness and compassion for ourselves is really important um, as well when it comes to food. And again, that's often absent when I'm, when I'm working with women because they just, they will just feel guilty if they do exactly what you've just said um they feel like somehow they've you know they've let themselves down by mm. treating themselves or eating something naughty it's with that language you know i was a bit cheeky and i had to, um i had some cake i treated myself or um yeah it's with that language always good bad naughty it's almost yeah the really sort of um sort of simple language that we would probably learn in, in childhood it is. And I think often we give away where our stuff comes from because of the language we use and the food we choose to eat. You know, in terms of no one chooses to have like a, I don't know, a bowl of chicken soup when they're being in adverse commas naughty. I mean, I know naughty is like my absolute worst word in the world. We choose to have like biscuits that came from our childhood or chocolate. It's funny, my mother used to, she had issues with food and she used to eat a lot of ice cream and I never ever used to even buy ice cream. And recently I've noticed I've started buying more ice cream. My children never really got into ice cream, but, um, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Am I repeating a pattern here? Um, and ice cream doesn't even really agree with me very much, but it's kind of, I think it's such of all the things in the world, food, I think is food and money and probably food comes last in terms of how we kind of unpick our healing from it. I think it's the most layered into us in terms of how we've coped, you know? Absolutely. No question. And and I think that's like listening to how you so much of your work sounds like like a therapeutic role in terms of helping someone be loving towards themselves. Yeah. It's it's partly my you know, as a nutritional therapist, my job is to support women not only with their diet, their food choices, but also their lifestyle choices. So, you know, I had a, a session with a client this morning and she is incredibly stressed so you know her central nervous system is um you know she is i compared it to a guitar string that has just been pinged you know it's just vibrating she has a lot going on and i said you know we can give you a better diet but we need to work on you regulating your nervous system we need to work on you coming down from this fight or flight that you have existed in for so long so we need to find moments in your day and that's part of what i do in terms of um managing you know the balance is to prioritize as if it's a business meeting that I cannot miss. How do we um, find those pockets of time? And actually, no, not find them, take them. We don't have to earn them. We don't deserve them. We, you know, yes, they are ours to take, um, you know, and, and it might be a walk outside for 10 minutes a day. It might be going to bed 20 minutes earlier and listening to something that makes you laugh on the radio. It might be reading a trashy novel. It might be, it might be making yourself a nourishing breakfast every day. You know, it's something that says to your body, today in some way I will nourish myself. And so that's what has helped me a lot is just is prioritizing my well-being. And so for me, it's been 
it's been exercise in the gym because I'm 48, I'm in perimenopause and I recognize that's important. For me, I, my diet is good, but I never exercised. I hate it. So I joined a, a small gym uh, last year and it goes into my diary and I go. And um, that for me has really helped me mentally to just feel less overwhelmed. You know, it's whatever lights you up. That's wonderful. And do you, for your perimenopause stuff, do you do specific type of exercise? I mean, do you focus on weights or on... I do strength training. Strength training. Yeah. yeah. So weight resistance and strength training. And some cardio work, but mainly just I'm thinking about my heart and my bones. Because I wasn't doing that and I was aware that that was something that was missing from my well-being. But also just thinking about getting outside more and I just use the 478 breath if I feel overwhelmed, you know, something that no one can, has to see me doing. I've had some experience now, thanks to some colleagues, with some tapping, so I will tap if I feel overwhelmed. It's just having these, I'm not crazy about the phrase toolkit, but, you know, it's having something to reach for when we are feeling overwhelmed that is manageable, that that can work for our day-to-day. Because it's all well and good saying, just take an afternoon off a week and go and have a massage. I mean, who the hell has time to do that? So it's what can we work into our day that feels manageable? Being in perimenopause has been a, um, uh, when we talk about sort of growing yourself up, perimenopause has been quite humbling. And it's, I specialize in perimenopause. So it's, uh, I've seen my clients go through it and I, now I'm sort of knee deep in it. And it's been um, much more challenging to regulate my emotions in perimenopause um, and to look after myself. So it's a new, it's a new, a new, new phase in my life. Do you want to say a bit more about that, about perimenopause and some of the things that you faced? Just about, you know, it's called the second puberty. And I think that's really, going through it now, I feel it's really apt. Yeah, just that it is, um, you feel so unpredictable so that your moods feel more unpredictable. My emotions feel more unpredictable. And then just, I feel more anxious than I I did before. You know, all of these things that I I recognize are part of my perimenopause. So being a mum in perimenopause has meant that I need to change a little bit how I am with my boys in terms of I'm, if I lose my temper more or if just being honest with them. You know, last week I shared this on social media. Yeah. I, I went, for, was, I had a really tough day. I was feeling really anxious. And my 13 year old said, mum, you don't seem yourself. Are you okay? And I was going to say, I'm fine. Everything's fine because that's what I was taught to do. You protect your kids from everything. You just say everything is fine. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with him. You know, he comes to me with everything. I should you know, respect him and, and do the same. And I said, do you know, have you ever heard of perimenopause? And he said, oh, I've heard of menopause. Is it the same? And I, I said, well, this is the difference. And I said, this is what's happening for me right now. And this is what I'm experiencing. And he was amazing. And he said, oh, that sounds really tough, mum. Do you want a hug? And so I said, yeah, it would be really nice. And I tried and I had a little cry, but it was dark. So he didn't see that. Um, but actually it was okay if he saw that. And it would have been okay if he had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. But that's, for me, that's a new learning as a mum is to, as they're getting older, is to trust what they can hold as well. And, you know, and when you have a day where it's just, you know, you're, you're losing your mind and you're raging, just to be honest and say, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. It's not you. I'm just having a really bad day. In terms of mothering, it's just a whole new challenge from my, on my perspective rather than them, which is new, you know. Um, I feel I'm changing. Whereas it's been the kids changing all these years. Yeah, it's true. And we are changing. I think I'm 47 and my kids are seven. So I am definitely aware that I will be in perimenopause, you know, as they're growing up and menopause actually. And that there'll be many more of us going through that because we're having kids later, you know, because if you've had your children all in your 20s, by the time you get to menopause, it's unlikely you'll still be mothering young children, but it's extremely impactful. And I wonder sometimes what, what we term maternal rage how much is that driven by menopause and perimenopause? I mean, I don't know that. What you just said about, so I spe- specialize in hormonal health. And so what I see often is, and we talked a little bit about postnatal depletion, is that I can see, you see a lot of women in their 40s having their first, second, third babies, but they're also experiencing these hormonal shifts. And that's a collision of whether it's biochemistry or physiological, however they're experiencing it, it is, it can feel really dramatic. Um, and they're not acknowledging that. They're not aware of it or they're not acknowledging that that might be what's causing their anxiety or they're over- contributing to that overwhelm or, uh, you know, so I get really passionate about supporting women to not accept as normal all the things we've been told we should just get on with as women. 
PMS, period pain, you know, um, and in perimenopause as well, you know, all of the symptoms that go along, we're told, well, it's, you know, what do you expect? That's your age, off you go. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's that really true that we see women having children later um, and therefore hormonally there may be um, more fluctuations as, due to their age as well as the fact that they're at home with small children. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is such a big topic of discussion because the fact that we know hardly anything about periods, about perimenopause, about menopause, like we've been so neglected in the research and the medical research, it makes my blood like boil right out of my body. It makes me so angry. And I'm noticing the time. And so I want to talk about where we can find you and how they, people can work with you. But also, I just wanted to really touch on something you said earlier about how your clients come to you and they need permission to look after themselves. And I like what you said later about how when you're creating spaces in your days, you have to take it. And I think it's the same with permission. We have to take the permission. Absolutely. No one is coming to save us. We have to like grab it. And so I really want to emphasize that message that you gave us. So, so tell us, Dalia, what about your social media handles and how can people work with you? Do you do one-on-one work and group work? Yes, I do. So I'm Thalia Pellegrini underscore nutrition uh, on Instagram. And um, I do one-to-one work and I have a group perimenopause program as well, six-month group program. My website is thaliapellegrini.com. So you can book a call with me if you just want to chat with me and, and see if we're a good fit. Yeah. And um, and I have a free Facebook group and I run free events through the year. And uh, so there's lots of ways to, to be part of my community. Okay, wonderful. And all of those details will be in the show notes. And if, just to say one more thing about, you know, if there's someone who's really struggling in terms of their food, is there anything that you would offer to them? Like anything that you feel is like a really important thing just as a baseline to start? I always say to women, have a nourishing breakfast. And, you know, it doesn't have to be at seven o'clock in the morning. It can be after the kids go to school and you might find you have a window of 10 minutes, whether it's before you start work or whatever your day gets underway. But to prioritize one nourishing meal for yourself a day. And, uh, you know, I, I have a free recipe collection that I send out, which is five minute breakfasts. You know, this doesn't have to be something that takes a long time. But I can't tell you the positive impact it can have when you just start your day with a, a nourishing meal you know, on your energy, on your mood, and that it always has impact then on how much you snack in the morning and the choices you make at lunchtime. And You know, it's a, a really lovely knock-on effect. So I would say start with breakfast. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Start with breakfast. Thank you. Pleasure. We're all about the shift here, so, and you know, instead of massive changes. So thank you. That's a really lovely message. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been really lovely to hear some of your story. And thank you for your vulnerability around what you've shared and all the wisdom around the food. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kat. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.